You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a distinguished lecture from the UCD Humanities Institute's research series, Media Encounter Witness Troubling Pass. The lecture, Testimony Through Culture Towards a Theoretical Framework, was given by Sarah Jones, Professor of Modern Languages at the University of Birmingham. The event took place at the UCD Humanities Institute on the 18th of February 2019. The Media Encounter Witness Troubling Pass Research Strand is coordinated by Associate Professor Emily Pine and Associate Professor Emily Mark Fitzgerald. Um, well, thank you very much, Emily, for the invitation. Um, and I should say Emily is also co-investigator on the uh, Testimony and Practice project, so I'm really looking forward to working with you further on testimony um, over the next couple of years as well. Um, so the title of my talk is Testimony Through Culture, and it's actually kind of the, um, the outcome, or one of the outcomes of the research network uh, for which I was principal investigator between 2016 and 2019, uh, Culture and its Uses as Testimony. Um, and if you want to find out more about it, then the, the uh, website link is just there. Um, the network's principal aim was to bring together multiple disciplines to explore the use of cultural forms of testimony in processes of reconciliation and justice in societies recovering from war, genocide, and authoritarian rule, or so we put it in the original application. Um, and actually, I think that is what we did to a large extent do. Um, the success of the network in fulfilling this aim can be seen in the diversity of its membership. So we heard and discussed the work of scholars and practitioners focusing on the use of testimony in education and the therapeutic settings, in theatre, literature, autobiography, diaries, film, art installations, photography and social media. We reflected on video testimony, testimony in museum settings, the testimony of perpetrators, victims, survivors, and the second and subsequent generations, testimony in legal proceedings, and in truth and reconciliation commissions. So I feel like the HRC got their money's worth. Um, so multidisciplinary exchange highlighted the diversity of views on what testimony is, what culture is, and what theoretical, methodological, and ethical considerations need to be taken into account in its use. Nonetheless, it also focused our attention on several key concerns across the disciplines working on or with different forms of testimony. These concerns can be summarised, I think, as questions of authenticity, perpetrator testimony, empathy, secondary witnessing, embodiment and performance, and the role of fictionalisation. And in my lecture this evening, what I want to do is offer a first response to these discussions and a first step towards um, what we might call a theoretical framework that might inform the study and use of testimony. Um, and just to say up front, my focus is going to be on testimony relating to traumatic past events, albeit drawing on broader understandings of testimony as a form of knowledge, in case there are any philosophers in the room. So that diversity of objects that we, can, we consider to contain or use cultural forms of testimony in the network necessarily raises questions about definitions, in particular, how we define testimony. So can we really bring all these forms of testimony, these forms of giving voice to the past experience together in one group? So at its most general, and this is where I'm kind of drawing on uh, philosoph 
philosophical discussions about testimony, the term can be understood to refer broadly to something like ordinary, everyday, informative, or purportedly informative statements. And as I say, this is the view of testimony commonly taken in philosophical work on, for example, the epistemology of testimony. But as um, the philosopher McMillan notes, this definition is far more inclusive than the ways in which the concept is used in what he refers to as formal testimony. And we might summarise this narrower definition as a view of testimony as a communicative act in a given cultural context in which a witness gives an account of something she has directly experienced for the benefit of an audience that has not. It is this understanding of testimony, and particularly with reference to traumatic pasts, um, that was dominant in our discussions in the network, and the one that I will work with here. So how can we kind of consider this, this view of testimony as having emerged? Thomas identifies two interconnected root forms of this kind of formal testimony, legal and religious. The figure of the witness to history has emerged from these original forms and shares with them some aspects of the communicative practices that shaped them. Notably, like the legal and religious witness, the historic witness is only required in circumstances where there is an open challenge to the witness's interpretation of the past. That is, where there are those who would witness differently or not at all. Moreover, witnessing then as now is subject to a complex relationship between presence and absence. In order to be a potential witness, the person must be there at the time. However, when the time for witnessing arrives, the initial situation is absent. Witnessing thus involves bringing the past to the present and communicating that past to an audience who is absent. An essential part of witnessing is therefore the concept of trust. In communicating her testimony, the witness is asking to be believed, which is also a form of social acknowledgement and granting of the authority to speak. And I'll come back to that. For some, the term testimony, when it's used in connection with traumatic past, and particularly in connection with the Holocaust, refers specifically to a survivor talking about that past in person. That is, the giving of testimony is for these people a face-to-face encounter. That testimony may be recorded, notably as video testimony, but it must not be fictionalised, and it must still be in the format of a single person recounting or, tra- recounting or traumatic experience for an audience. This view of testimony as something special, different, separate, apart, even sacred, drives the concern with the loss of the generation of survivors and the efforts to recreate the communicative situation of testimony in the absence of the witness. Um, and we see that a great deal in the UK at the moment with the discussions around the planned Hol- uh, National Holocaust Memorial, for example. Researchers and practitioners who espouse this view of testimony might acknowledge that even face-to-face testimony remains a mediation through language, culture, genre, and so on. And yet there is still an emphasis on the special nature of face-to-face encounters and the impossibility of replicating that communicative act in other ways. Lang writes, for example, the live testimony of a survivor differs in impact from recorded testimony even when the words spoken are identical. Young argues that rather than becoming separated from her words, the speaker in video testimony reinvests them with her presence, her authority, and the link between a survivor and her story is sustained in video as it cannot be in a literary narrative. In this way, such scholarship can sometimes appear to obscure the effects of mediation using terms that deny the presence of the camera, the interviewer, and the institution. 
Moreover, while few expect testimony to be a one-to-one -one reflection of a past reality, the insistence that testimony can be directly referential can draw boundaries between fiction and non-fiction that are not always analytically useful or sustainable. And again, I'll come back to that. Indeed, researchers generally agree that testimony is mediated through culture, if we understand culture very broadly. That mediation will take different forms and will be more or less transparent, but each mediation will nonetheless shape the testimony in a particular way and according to the logic of a particular cultural script, be it the performance of legal testimony or the genre conventions of a novel. But where does that get us? If it's axiomatic that testimony is mediated, what is achieved by focusing on that mediation? I'd like to argue that it focuses our attention on and heightens our awareness of the particular cultural form or script that is part of that testimony. In particular, it makes clear the nature of testimony as a performance in and through a particular medium and as a dialogue between witness and audience. This in turn has implications for our understanding of authenticity and empathy, the relationship between these concepts and embodiment, and the question of who can witness. So to start then with our first key term, authenticity. If we understand testimony to be a communicative act, there is no testimony if there is no implied or actual audience. In this context, we might consider the distinction made by Peters between witnessing as a sensory experience and witnessing as a discursive act of stating one's experience for the benefit of an audience that was not present at the event and yet must make some kind of judgment about it. Um, so this is also, he describes this also as a distinction between passive witnessing, by which he means just the experiencing, and active witnessing, which is actively telling someone, writing about, etc., that experience. In this way, the focus on testimony as a performance through culture highlights the fact that we are always dealing with the utterance of the witness, rather than the experience of the witness itself. This means that alongside studying the relationship between a witness and her testimony, we must also consider the relationship between the audience and the witnessing text, text understood to mean speech, film, etc. What this sensitizes us to is the role that the re listener, reader, viewer, interviewer play in the creation of testimony and at the same time in the production of authenticity. Authenticity with reference to historical eyewitnesses is most commonly embedded in concepts of reliability, verifiability and originality. It is therefore most often been sought in the relationship between the witness and her text. That is, the focus has been on whether the experiences to which the witness is testifying are her own, and if she is presenting them in good faith as a true representation of the past. Jeffrey Hartman, for example, is critical of historians who de whose demands for reliability presume that witnessing should furnish, despite small contingent variations, one and only one version of what was experienced, and which privilege a hypothetical original version. Yet Hartman's own view of authenticity is nonetheless based on the identity of the witness, as seen in his description of Benjamin Wilkomirski's fragments as an authentic fake. Hartman's seemingly contradictory term, authentic fake, points towards an important feature of authenticity. Wilkomirski's fragments is a fake because the author did not have the experiences described in the work despite it being marked as autobiographical. Nonetheless, before this fact was revealed, it was assumed by most of the reading public to be an authentic representation of the Holocaust. On the other hand, audiences are reluctant to consider as authentic texts by perpetrators, 
even where these are presented as the honest accounts of an individual who demonstrably had the experiences to which they attest. Authenticity can thus be seen not as something that is an objective feature of a text, but as a process of reception. It is, in Selper's terms, a performative communication marker that leads to the ascription of authenticity by the recipient. In accepting a witnessing text as authentic, the recipient is also making a statement about the witness herself. That is, she is to be trusted in this matter. As Schmidt argues, in the giving of testimony, the witness is making a, in, a statement with the understanding that here, it is her word that is to be relied on. If the listener accepts this promise, then she is acknowledging the speaker's sincerity, competence, and intention to speak the truth, and as a writer can claim, complain if the claim to speak the truth turns out to be false. This is part of what Macmillan, turning back to the broader uh, philosoph philosophical understandings of testimony, describes as the epistemic right of deferral, by which he means the right to refer any challenges to knowledge gained through the testimony of another person to the original witness. In giving testimony, the witness accepts responsibility for the knowledge she conveys, and the audience accepts that knowledge on the basis of the presumed authority of the speaker. The audience may be challenged on its decision to accept the authority of the speaker, so why did you believe her? Um, but can nonetheless defer responsibility for the content of the testimony back to the testifier. As trust is a form of social acknowledgement and recognition, the need for trust in testimony also has implications for whom a given society recognises as witnesses, which leads us then to the question of perpetrators. In contemporary accounts of testimony, perpetrators are often not described as witnesses, this term is reserved for either a bystander, whose authority is rooted in, in impartiality and distance, particularly in legal contexts, or for the survivor whose authority is rooted in the fact that he or she has experienced an event firsthand and completely. Perpetrators tend not to be included, particularly, as Schmidt notes, in contexts in which the notion of testimony is equipped with a normative value. That is where being granted the right to bear witness is a form of social acknowledgement and endowment of moral authority. This is especially prominent, for example, in Avishai Margalit's concept of the moral witness. The moral witness is a witness who has experienced suffering directly and who has a moral purpose in reporting that suffering to an audience who has not. This category would evidently exclude perpetrators. Indeed, this recourse to arguments based on moral force highlights what we are really asking when we ask if perpetrators can be witnesses. We are not asking if they were present at an event or if they are able to communicate about that event to an audience who needs to make a judgment on it. Perpetrators evidently meet both those criteria. They are able to bear witness in both the passive and active sense. The concern with perpetrator testimony relates instead to the symbolic and social aspects of testimony. Granting the right to give testimony is a form of acknowledgement that the witness is able and intends to speak the truth as she experienced it. We feel quite uneasy about this with regard to perpetrators, um, and Schmidt describes this as being in two ways. Firstly, we tend to assume the perpetrator has more reason than the victim to lie about her account in order to exculpate herself, so we don't trust her. Secondly, we as an audience may be unwilling to grant the perpetrator this form of recognition as a bearer of truth, even an impartial one. Sorry, even a partial one, not an impartial one. Um, if we use the post-event accounts of perpetrators at all, we tend to subject them to particular scrutiny 
and dissection in terms of their truth value. In this sense, researchers deploy an often implicit hierarchy of testimony, which is underpinned by a normative and ethical perspective on whose voice has the greatest value. This issue can also be considered in terms of respect. As the term is generally understood, we may be unwilling to confer respect on the perpetrators of mass or state-supported violence, and granting them the status of witnesses would seem to constitute just such a form of social acknowledgement. However, it's here that the work of Espindola on the exposure of East German unofficial informants after unification can be helpful. Coming from the discipline of philosophy, Espindola takes a particular approach to the concept of respect, which exposes its multifaceted dimensions. Of interest in our context are his reflections on the importance of recognising the personhood of perpetrators, something he describes as recognition respect, even if we dishonour and disrespect them for their past actions. And this might be especially important in post-conflict societies seeking to work through a past in which such a universal respect for personhood was not present. Central to Espindola's concept of respect in this regard is an acknowledgement of perpetrators as agents who can be held accountable. So he says, treating someone with respect means treating her like a fully-fledged agent who is answerable for her acts. Provided that she has some degree of autonomy, she should be considered as someone who can give reasons for her actions and take responsibility for them. She is a justificatory being and a bearer of the consequences of her actions. When others do not maintain this attitude towards her, they do not treat her as an agent, but patronizingly as a child or a beast, and therefore do not respect her. If, following Espindola, the perpetrator must be allowed to give reasons for her actions, she must be granted the chance to speak about those actions. We cannot hold perpetrators accountable for what they have done if we are not ready to listen to their accounts about what they have done, that is, to allow them to bear witness. Thus, there is a tension, I think, between our mistrust of perpetrator testimony, our unwillingness to grant perpetrators the symbolic acknowledgement of accepting their version of events as an honest account, and the ethical imperative to respect perpetrators in the sense of recognising their humanity and agency. And this is where the ethics of mediating testimony and a view through the lens of culture can be important. Indeed, despite Aronis, or indeed perhaps because of it, perpetrator testimony has been mediated in and through different cultural forms, from theatre, film and autobiographical writing, to testimony given at truth and reconciliation commissions. Looking at the witnessing texts rather than the witnesses highlights how such mediations can bridge the gap between these different ethical positions. Done well, such mediations of perpetrator testimony can grant perpetrators the respect for personhood and the agency to present their accounts and be held responsible for their actions, and yet can resist the social acknowledgement that comes with allowing these accounts to stand as truth. One such example uh, which was represented in our network is the project Epilogues, which sets different accounts of the violent political conflict in and about Northern Ireland alongside one another, allowing contradictions to emerge and placing testimony by perpetrators of violence alongside that of victims and survivors and across the political divide. Analyzing cultural mediations of testimony from this perspective can also highlight where one ethical imperative is allowed to dominate the other. That is where the desire to give perpetrators a voice overrides respect for the victims or where resistance to acknowledging the perpetrator perspective risks denying their agency. The granting of amnesties in exchange for testimony at Tooth and Reconciliation Commissions 
may fall into the first category. An example of the latter is the documentary film Everyday Life in the Office. In this film, the perpetrators, high-ranking Stasi officials, that's not a particularly flattering um, impression of one of them there, um, are allowed to speak, but their testimony is framed in such a way as to continually undermine and discredit it. So we may find approaches to that, such, such as that taken in everyday life in the office, an acceptable method of presenting the accounts of perpetrators without granting those voices, the social acknowledgement that comes with the status of witness. Yet what this form of mediation does not do is encourage the audience to attempt to understand the perpetrator perspective. We are not invited to see the world from their point of view. The avoidance of first-person narratives in much perpetrator fiction relating to the Holocaust can be considered another example of this method. Pettit considers the absence of first-person perspectives in such works to be a potential attempt to avoid the facilitation of empathy with the protagonist. Indeed, empathy becomes a very complex issue with regard to perpetrator testimony. Pettit argues that the texts that form the subject of her analysis deploy a narrative technique that insists on a continual movement of the reader, drawing them into the narrative and simultaneously refusing an immersive experience. In the process, the reader is, Pettit argues, encouraged to address the questions of why and how, however true empathetic connections are not fostered, allowing ethical judgments to be made. Nonetheless, these ethical judgment, judgments are not made on the basis of no identification with the perpetrator. As Pettit goes on to conclude, rather the identification is what she, following Van Elpen, describes as a heteropathic identification. In contrast to idiopathic identification, in which the thoughts and feelings of the other are internalised as one's own, heteropathic identification is dependent on an external projection of the self onto the other, which allows for a certain kind of engagement with the otherness that the perpetrator represents. And I think this can also be reconsidered in the light of philosophical reflections on empathy. Copeland notes that empathy has a number of divergent definitions, that, but for her, true empathy should meet a strict set of conditions, namely effective matching, other-oriented perspective-taking, and self-other differentiation. By effective matching, Copeland means the observer's affective states are qualitatively identical to the targets that they may vary in degree, so we feel the same as the person we are empathising with. However, this must not come, through, uh, come about through emotional contagion, that is a process whereby we catch the emotions of the other, but experience them as our own. Instead, the would-be empathiser must engage in perspective-taking, and this must be other-oriented. That is, we have to imagine the other's situation from the other's point of view. At the same time, through self-other differentiation, we remain aware that the other is a separate person who has her own unique thoughts, feelings, desires, and characteristics. So basically, we empathise, we feel things, but we recognise um, that those are other people's feelings, not our own, and also we try to feel them as they would feel them rather than as we would feel them. That's where the other-oriented perspective-taking comes in. Empathy that is produced in this way can, Copeland argues, give rise to experiential understanding. That is, it provides an observer with knowledge of another person's thoughts, feelings, and behaviour, knowledge that may subsequently figure into the explanations, predictions, and even actions of the observer. 
With regard to perpetrator testimony, this kind of experiential understanding appears desirable. Knowledge that allows us to explain and predict the behaviour of perpetrators of mass violence and modify our actions accordingly would seem essential to efforts to prevent a recurrence of violence. However, for this to be achieved following Copeland's definition of empathy, the audience must be allowed to see from the perspective of the perpetrator to imagine and simulate how they feel as they would feel it. We might feel quite uneasy about this idea of empathy, empathy with the perpetrator, if it were to mean imagining ourselves as the same as them, that is, experiencing the emotions that drive xenophobia and hatred as our own emotions. However, a definition of empathy that insists on self-other differentiation has rather different ethical implications. Here we are being asked instead to imagine and understand what these emotions are and why the other experience them. As Copeland notes, this is not knowledge constructed from an objective perspective, rather it is developed through the experience of the other's perspective, so it's still subjective. This level of distance can sustain critical judgment on those emotions and on the actions of the individual. However, to achieve this, the mediation of perpetrator testimony through films, books, etc., must allow the audience to engage with the perspective of the speaker, to recognise her as a fully-fledged human agent with a range of emotions, rationalisations and an effective response to her environment. So much for perpetrators. Um, so moving on then to think about uh, the next kind of witnesses who are not always granted the right to witness, secondary witnesses. So empathy is um, key to understanding the widespread use of survivor testimony in popular and public history. As de Jong notes, the use of witnesses in museums relating to the Holocaust, and I, I would add not only the Holocaust, primarily serves the object, objective of moral education, including in terms of affect, making the visitor respond emotionally in a way they have not responded before. Here too, the other-oriented perspective, the possibility to retain a certain distance from the other is important. Without it, the observer risks responding with personal distress, that is, when one observes another person in distress and reacts by becoming distressed oneself. Copeland argues this can result in what she describes as over-arousal, and therefore a focus on one's own distress and, uh, and how to alleviate it. Um, so if we experience someone else's um, pain as our own pain, then we tend to focus on our own pain um, rather than, than, than seeing it as someone else's experience and therefore perhaps taking political action to prevent it from happening again. Um, so such a reaction, that the focus on oneself, is likely to be detrimental to the aim to encourage deep understanding of the reasons for and impact of mass violence on the survivor, for that survivor, and the persecuted, persecuted group of which they may be part. So I think this um, leads us then to the second group around which there's much debate as to their status as witnesses, secondary witnesses, and um, I might add tertiary witnesses and so on, but I haven't really got time to go into that, that, those, those uh, theoretical frameworks, but um, this can be extended. Uh, secondary witnesses have been conceptualised in multiple ways. Um, in the context of Hirsch's concept of post-memory, they are primarily understood as the second or subsequent generation, that is, the children or grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. However, Hirsch has subsequently extended this to include the concept of affiliative post-memory. Hirsch uses this term to express the way in which the reactivation and re-embodiment of memory enacted by the second generation of survivors 
can be extended through structures of mediation that would be broadly available, appropriable, and indeed compelling enough to encompass a larger collective in an organic web of transmission. So basically mediated structures that allow us to then have a form of, of post-memory, even though we don't have any familial connection um, to the Holocaust. And I think in this sense, affiliative post-memory shares features with Landsberg's concept of prosthetic memory, a process by which mass media, and especially film and museums in Landsberg's analysis, allow the individual to have an experience of past events to which they have no national, ethnic, or familial connection. And what these two approaches share is an understanding of secondary witnessing that compri comprises those who did not experience an event firsthand, but who, but who have heard and bear witness to the testimony of those who did. Secondary witnesses in this sense did not witness that event in the passive sense, but they can witness the mediation of that event and consider themselves to have knowledge of that event through that mediation. So we feel like we know something and can speak about it. And um, for many of the, the uh, cultural projects around gathering Holocaust testimony and mediating Holocaust testimony, there's very much the hope that they'll create a community of, of secondary witnesses who go on to continue conveying um, the history and memory of the Holocaust into the future. Um, moreover, the secondary witnesses can therefore bear witness in the active sense by recounting that knowledge for an audience. And yet there are important objections to this concept of secondary witnessing among those who fear that an obsession with accounts of trauma has less to do with an ethical engagement with the past and more with a voyeuristic appropriation of the pain of others. From this viewpoint, the concept of the witness is implicitly or explicitly tied to the body to qualify as witness, the person must have experienced trauma physically. So secondary witnessing, then, wouldn't be possible. Indeed, it's notable that approaches to secondary witnessing frequently focus on the importance of physical presence. The concepts of both post-memory and prosthetic memory are founded on an idea of the bodily experience of trauma and that it in some way can be transferred, either across generations or through immersive media experiences. In this case, the secondary witness is presumed to become such through a visceral, bodily, physical experience. The perceived importance of the physical presence of the witness is also seen in the preoccupation with live, face-to-face -face testimony in Holocaust education. It can also explain why so many mediations of eyewitness testimony by non-witnesses emphasise embodiment of witness testimony, from theatre performances that stage verbatim accounts to the use of hologram technology through which the spectator can have the experience of interacting with the 3D representation of a survivor. So this, this apparent obsession with the embodiment of testimony, with the body of the witness, can be linked to questions of authenticity. The witness gains her authority to speak from physical experience of the past. To some extent, this definition reflects the deep roots of testimony in legal and religious contexts. The witness in court testifies to his or her own home perception of an event at which she was present and must usually be present in court to testify. The martyr testifies to faith with the literal sacrifice of her body. And yet closer examination of both legal and religious concepts of testimony indicates that this understanding of witnessing as being tied to the body does not appear as central as it might first seem. In the courtroom, witnesses can also be called on the basis of their expertise that is their knowledge, which can be acquired through studying and learning, not only experience. 
The death of the martyr means that she too is reliant on secondary witnesses to, as Elida Asman puts it, identify her as a martyr rather than as a justly persecuted rebel and to codify her story for the future generations. Those secondary witnesses include future generations of religious followers who testify not on the basis of experience, but according to belief and learning. To a certain extent, we also see this ambivalence in reflections on Holocaust testimony. Echoing Primo Levi's much earlier Holocaust text, The Drowned and the Saved, Agamben describes a lacuna in, the Holo in Holocaust testimony, which calls into question the very meaning of testimony. For the true witnesses, the complete witnesses, are those who did not bear witness and could not bear witness. The survivors speak in their stead by proxy as pseudo-witnesses. They bear witness to a missing testimony. This debate over secondary witnessing thus brings us back to the question of what it means to know what happened, and if knowledge of trauma must be tied to physical experience of trauma. Historically, it has been, historically it has been considered desirable for the witness not to have been actively involved in the events she describes. As a, as a bystander rather than someone involved. And yet when it comes to the witness to history, presence in time and space seem to be crucial. This means presence in the time and space of the event itself, but also ideally presence in time and space at the point of telling. It is through their body that the witness connects the past to the present. In this regard, there is indeed something special about first-person accounts from those who have bodily experience of trauma. And yet that something special turns out once again to be the audience's socially constructed response to a survivor's text, a feeling of deep insight into what the past meant for the individual, an empathetic response that allows us to engage, ideally, with the perspective of the other, and contact with the real experience of history. Modes of secondary witnessing often seek to replicate this audience response. Which leads me then to um, the final aspect that I want to discuss, which is the question of fictionalization. So this something special is one reason why authentic fakes, in Hartman's terms, inspire such anger. A text presented as testimony based on experience is acknowledged as truthful in a particular way. Discovery that the knowledge in the text is in fact based on learning and not presence is experienced as a breach of trust. This is the case even where the events depicted are an accurate reflection of a historical reality and where we would otherwise grant the speaker authority to speak about that past based on other criteria, such as extensive study and research. Nonetheless, while we might indeed find the presentation of false testimony deeply troubling in ethical terms as an appropriation of the trauma of others or a form of self-oriented empathy taken to an extreme, this does not mean that all forms of fictionalization must be viewed with distrust. Indeed, a clear-cut distinction between fiction and non-fiction is difficult to sustain. As Haydn White told us quite some time ago, it is sometimes said that the difference between history and fiction resides in the fact that the historian finds her stories, whereas the fiction writer invents hers. This conception of the historian's task, however, obscures the extent to which invention also plays a part in the historian's operations. The same event can serve as a different kind of element in, of many different historical stories, depending on the role it is assigned in a specific motific characterization of the set to which it belongs. In testimony, the witness finds her stories an experience, but in the process of narration, she gives them shape and follows the conventions of a specific genre, written testimony, oral testimony, video testimony, theater, film, documentary, etc. 
Moreover, as White argues, even testimonies that appear matter-of-fact in style make use of figurative language and a literary mode of writing which can heighten both the referential and the semantic balances of a discourse of fact. These poetic features lend an element of fiction to these accounts, although the events described are in no way invented. These observations shed light on the work of witnesses who choose to represent their experiences in genres widely associated with factual representation, autobiography, video testimony, verbatim theatre, documentary film, etc., but also on the witnessing texts of those who give an account of their lives through genres of fiction, that is, who mediate their pasts in literature, works of art, feature films, dance, and so on. Indeed, the boundaries between the two are fluid. In the first network workshop, um, novelist Carmen Francesca Bonchu, a dissident author in communist Romania, described the relationship between her personal experience of state violence and her literature. Her narrative voice and, f- and focaliser are not identical with the author, nor does she claim that identity. That is, this is not autobiographical writing. And yet her literature is a way of processing and communicating her past to others. She is both close and from the, uh, distant from the eye that speaks. And, as she describes it, this distance allows her to explore painful memories. Fictionalization is essential for this author, giving an account of her past, and it is is the poetic language itself that can allow us to see what lies at the source of language, its point of origin, to which language does not provide unfettered access, um, to quote Bernard Donals. We might then permit the concept of literary or fictional testimony, that is, creative forms produced by the individuals who with lived experience of trauma that they recount. These texts are received in a particular way as the reader, viewer, or listener simulates the emotions of a fictional character that is, empathizes with a figure born of imagination, and yet he or she does so in recognition that the experiences described could have been. But what of creative work that is twice removed that is of that of theatre producers, filmmakers, literary authors, who work with the testimony of others, but refigure and condense it to bring forth its poetic power, can these forms also function as testimony? Um, And I'm just going to explain the photographs on the slide there um, as a way of illustrating what I'm about to say. Um, So the book is um, Carmen Francesca's latest novel, which was uh, long-listed for the German Book Prize. Um, The third from the right is Carmen Francesca herself, and then the other two pictures um, were taken uh, last month in Bucharest uh, when I was there with the theatre company and Carmen Francesca um, in, as a kind of part of the documentation process of the collaborative theatre production that we're making together, whereby La Conquesta de Polsud are going to stage the, um, the life and works of Carmen Francesca, who was also going to perform on stage in that theatre production. Um, so in this sense... La Conquesta del Sud are remediating um, and reworking the testimony of Carmen Francesca. So in some ways they're, they're working as secondary witnesses with the primary witness. So you have this double, triple, possibly quadruple layer of mediation going on there. Um, so I would argue that a focus on culture and on the witnessing text means that the answers to this question, um, the question of whether or not this can be considered a form of witnessing, is Yes. These texts are triply mediated through the secondary witness, through the artistic form and the figurative language of the medium, and through the location of the medium in a particular culture. Yet these texts nonetheless operate as a form of communication between witness and audience that can, perhaps exactly because of that mediation, because of that distance, 
work to promote an other-oriented empathy with the victims and survivors of atrocity that does not risk over-arousal. Looking at testimony through the prism of culture in this way does not mean we can abandon a commitment to a truthful representation of the past in the sense of an avoidance of the distortion of the historical record. Nonetheless, it can add to this commitment further ethical considerations. Does the witnessing text in front of us mediate that trauma in a way we consider respectful, trustworthy, and which can promote other-oriented empathy? Why, how, and importantly, for what purpose? The question of purpose can then, can then form the core of our study of testimony through culture. We can ask to what ends experience is, is mediated in different forms, and what the outcomes and impact of that mediation are for the witness and for her audience. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Media Encounter Witness Troubling Past Research Series at UCD Humanities Institute. For more information on the series, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.